glad that you're a part of it. And we've decided to kick off this year talking about some things that might make us blush, talking about some things that maybe we've put back on the back burner. It says in John 10, 10, that Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have life abundantly. And some of us are at that point in our life where we're like, I'm ready for that life abundantly. I'm ready for God to do something new in my life. And so we've been calling this series Connecting the Dots. And the reason why we've called it that is because we believe that it's time to connect the dots from what we know about Jesus, what we know about God's word, those things that we've heard, and connecting the dots to deep, deep life change in our life. And what we've been learning is this phrase that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's absolutely inseparable. You cannot say that you're a spiritually mature person and just be emotionally unhealthy in every way. God wants to change every part of us. And we talked about that last week. We talked about last week about how it's important for us to meet God with our emotions. Some of us grew up and some of us even right now are at that phase or at that place in our life where we don't wanna be. That term emotional is kind of a bad thing. Oh, you're just being emotional. You're just being emotional. And last week we talked about the fact that Jesus, before he did any miracle, he met God emotionally. He met God in sorrow. He met God in anger. And it was out of anger that he healed the man who had the withered hand because he was disappointed that everybody was like, you can't do that on the Sabbath. We talked about it, it was through compassion that he made the young man from Nain, that he rose him from the dead. It was because he met God at those emotions and we can do the same. That when we feel hurt, even feel anger or lust, we can come to God with those things. We can feel them, express them to God and God will meet us there. And today what we're gonna be talking about is a deep one. And it's a fun one, depending on, I don't know where you're from. Some of you, this might be the most frightening one. But what we're going to be talking about today is understanding our family of origin. And I'm just going to read to you the passage that we're going to be going through today. And it's Exodus 34, starting in verse 6. It says, the Lord passed, I'm going to unpack this in the sermon, so it might not make sense now, but I just want to read it to you for right now. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What the Bible is teaching us here is that our family of origin is wildly important. That our family of origin is wildly important. We lear learn to love, we learn to trust, we learn how to develop intimacy with other people or how to not do those things from our families of origin. When we come to know Jesus, we're told that the old is gone, the new has come. And you are absolutely new. And that is absolutely true when it comes to your status with God. That you're forgiven, that you've been justified, that the guilt is gone, the shame is gone, the fear is gone. The new has come because Jesus has come and he's making all things new. We call that, that happens the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ. We call that moment salvation. And then when you die someday, we call that moment glorification. 
When you get to God and you get this new body and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. But that space in between where you gave your life to Jesus and you enter glory one day, that's called sanctification. That's where God does this incredible work in you. It's called being sanctified, that you've, you've been justified, adopted, but now we confront those things in this dotted line in between those two spaces. We confront those things in our life that need to die. And that includes habits, that includes patterns, that includes hang-ups that we've learned from our family of origin. And very few of us emerge out of the family that we were born into, emerging out of this family that we love emotionally whole and mature. Very few of us do that. But there are people in this church right now and in other churches who know the Bible very well, who love Jesus and desire to follow him, but still abuse their spouse that still cheat, that still are addicted to pornography, that still live with addictions that they refuse to tell anybody about. There are people who believe the gospel, that we've been saved by grace and not by works, but they still live their life as if they're trying to earn something, and if they don't perform well, that they are nothing. There are people who grew up in church, coming to church every Sunday, listen to thousands of sermons, but are still miserable people. That still happens. Why is this? Why hasn't the power and mercy of Jesus touched those deeply entrenched places in our lives yet? Why haven't we connected the dots to those spaces yet? And of course, there are many answers to this, but one critical place that we have to focus as a church is our family of origin. We must understand our family of, of, of origin. And I wanna learn about this area as we study together as a church, by looking at one of my favorite passages in the Bible, one of the favorite, my favorite character studies in the Bible, and that's looking at, 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 in Exodus at the story of a man named Joseph. And this story of Joseph has a lot to teach us about the beauty and blessing of family, as well as the brokenness and family. And to understand the, the story of Joseph, you, we have to go back to the very beginning. In the very beginning, God created the world. And he created this, these creatures that inhabit the world called humans or Adam in Hebrew. He created them. He blessed them. And he put them in charge of what he created. But they re rebelled against him. They chose sin and rebellion. And the world spun into chaos. And so God invites a man named Noah to be a part of the world's redemption story. You know the story. There was an ark. There was a flood. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he appears on dry land and God repeats the same blessing he gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to Noah. But Noah ultimately fails, curiously, also naked and in a garden. And the world begins to kind of crumble again and it brings us to this, the people of Babel who decided that they didn't need God, they could ignore his commands and make a great name for themselves. And you might remember this story. They built this giant tower called the Tower of Babel trying to get to heaven on their own. And God scrambles their language. And from then on, Genesis begins to follow the lineage of one person, a descendant of Noah whose name is Abram. And this is what God says to Abram in Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who does honors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
And this is very key, and you have to understand this. What is the purpose of the family in the Bible? The family's original purpose in the Bible was to pass on blessing from one generation to the next. The family is meant to be the vessel, meant to be the vehicle, meant to be this, this, this thing that God uses to pass blessings from one person to the next. And as a, as a father, I'm a steward of the blessings that I've received from my heavenly father, and it's my job to pass those on to my children. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve, he said, take the blessings that you find in the garden and multiply them from generation to generation. And he's saying the same thing to Abraham. That this pattern of blessing, the covenant of God, gets passed down from one generation to the next. So much so that through Genesis chapter 12, through Genesis chapter 37, we see a phrase repeated over and over and over again that says, and God was with them, and God was with them, and God was with them from one generation to the next. But not only is blessing and covenant and inheritance passed from one generation to the next, there's also a lot of brokenness and sin and injustice that gets tossed in there and passed down. So if we just look at the lineage of Abraham, guys, I took a lot of time to write this. I want you to know that if you Google the lineage of Abraham, a family tree of Abraham, there is nothing. And so I've created it and I'm selling it online for 50 bucks a pop, just so you know. Or you could just take a picture of this, whatever. So anyways, we've got Abraham who ends up marrying, he's Abram, marries Sarai. Their names are changed from Abraham to Sarah. And then we see these things go on. What's really interesting is Abraham is, is a liar. He's a habitual liar. He marries Sarah, who is beautiful, and they go into this kingdom, and there's this king, and he, he's afraid people are going to kill him and try to take Sarah as his wife. So he lies and says, Sarah is not my wife, she's my sister. And that seems super creepy. And so he's, he's telling them this, and the king actually marries Sarah. Because he doesn't know that Abraham is married to Sarah, God appears to the king in a dream and says, bro, I'm going to kill you for marrying Sarah. And the king flips out, gets mad at Abraham and says, why would you lie to me? Abraham, and I'm going to get, go through all this a couple times, but that lying is what I'm talking about right now. Abraham and Sarah have Isaac. They have Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac is an incredible liar. He marries Rebekah. Isaac and Rebekah wander into the same land that his father had been before with the same king. Isaac is just as scared that they're gonna kill him and take Rebekah as their wife, so he lies and says that Rebekah is not my wife, she's my sister. And that same king is looking out his window and sees Isaac doing things with Rebekah that you don't do with your sister. And the king runs down there and goes, what are, this is your wife. And Isaac goes, yeah, that's my wife. And the king is like, what is wrong with you people? So these lies keep going and going and going. Isaac and Rebekah have twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is kind of this soft dude, which is really weird, is the name Jacob. They named their, their second-born twin Jacob, which in Hebrew means deceiver or liar. It's being passed down from generation to generation. Esau, as kind of the firstborn twin, gets the father's blessing, but Jacob wants it for himself, and he and his mom can connive together. Is that a word? I don't even know. They get together. They plot together. And this is what it says in Genesis 27, 11, 16, and 22. It says, but Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. 
I've been writing that verse on all the Christmas cards lately. Nobody's looked it up, praise God. But anyways, so what he's trying to do is his, his dad, Isaac, has gotten blind. And he wants to go in and pretend to be his brother Esau so his dad will give him the blessing and not Esau. And that's why he says to his mother, but he's hairy and I'm not. What if my dad touches me? What if he touches me? And it says in verse 16, it says, In the skins of young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. How devastatingly hairy was Esau? that they actually had to kill goats and put goat's fur on his, who's got that hairy of hands, man? And so that's what's going on. And this epic lie, and so you could see that these, these lies are being passed down from generation to generation to generation, and they continue to get worse. But it's not just the lies, there's favoritism. You'll see that, that Abraham, because he, was, he didn't trust God, had a child with his servant Hagar. Hagar has Ishmael. Uh, what happens is Abraham cries out to God and says, Oh God, that Ishmael might live under your blessing. So he shows some favoritism to Ishmael. Then Isaac and Rebekah have Jacob and Esau, and they love Esau more than they love Jacob because he's this colossally hairy dude. He's the firstborn. He's a man's man. He's a great hunter, a great warrior. They favor Esau plainly. And then when Jacob has kids, he favors his son Joseph. This is a really complicated story there. He favors his son Joseph because he's had so many kids from so many different wives. So not only is favoritism passed down from generation to generation, what you should know too is favoritism is almost a sin in the Bible. James tells us that God shows no partiality. And what that means is, not that God doesn't have favorites. I needed you to know right now that I am God's favorite. So calm down. But what I mean by that is you are also God's favorite. It's not that God doesn't have favorites. It's that we are all God's favorite. When my daughter comes up to me about three times a day, she knows she does this. And she goes, Dad, am I your favorite? I say, yes. And when Logan comes up to me and goes, Dad, am I your favorite? I say, yes. Why? Because they're all my favorite. We are all God's favorite. So favoritism gets passed down. Sibling rivalry gets passed down. Resentment and cut off and never speaking to again gets passed down from gener generation to generation. Infidelity and abuse gets passed down from generation to generation. Like I said, Abraham sleeps with Hagar and she gets pregnant and has a son because of, because of all this. And this gets passed down from generation to generation generation, Jacob, who is longing for the admiration and blessing of his father, develops fixation for this woman named Rachel. And he thinks, man, if I could just have Rachel, my life would be amazing. And so she becomes the emotional center of his world. And so Jacob it's, it comes up with this plan. I'm going to work for 14 years for this man so I can have Jacob at, or so that I can have Rachel as my wife. But in the long end of things, he ends up having 13 children, 12 sons with four different women and one daughter with four different women. Genesis gets a lot like Jerry Springer. Rachel and Joseph, and B Rachel has Joseph and Benjamin, his two youngest kids, but she dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. And so Joseph becomes his favorite and the emotional center of his world. There was a ton of wealth in this family, animals, property, but underneath all of that is a bunch of lying 
favoritism, rivalry, infidelity, and dysfunction. And all that dysfunction is the backdrop for Joseph's story. Joseph shows up in our Bible as a 17-year-old punk. The guy is basically kind of a brat. He's a jerk that boasts in his father's pride. The Bible says that he'll hang out with his brothers and then go to his dad and constantly give his dad a bad report on the things that his brothers are doing. They're cutting corners, dad. They're not listening to you, dad. And he's doing all this thing. And on top of that, his, his father, who loves Joseph more than any of his other sons, gives him a special coat of many colors. It becomes like a status symbol for Joseph. He never washes it. He never takes it off. He sleeps in it. He walks around with his brothers saying, look how great I am. Look how much dad loves me more than you. The dude has no emotional intelligence. He has no idea how big of a punk that he actually is. And then on top of that, he keeps telling his brothers these dreams that he has. Hey, I had a dream that you were all bowing to me and I was better than all of you. Hey, last night I had another dream that you were all bowing to me and I was better than all of you. So much so that his dad rebukes him and says, Joseph, you need to knock this stuff off. And so his brothers had this plot to kill him because they're so sick of it. So not only are all these sins being passed down, but now all of a sudden murder appears in the family tree. They decide not to kill him because they decide they can make money off of him, so they throw him in a pit and then they traffic him. They sell him as a slave to Egypt, and they do this really interesting thing that maybe you've never connected the dot to before, but it says in Genesis 37, 31 through 33, it says, then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. The one key that you need to see in there, you need to remember that Joseph's dad, Jacob, deceived his father with goat skins. Now Jacob is being, de being deceived by his own sons using the blood of a goat. This is appearing over and over again in the family tree. And the lies and deception have gotten worse and worse, so much so that to cover this lie, to make this lie happen, they throw a fake funeral for Joseph. They have to live for years, maybe decades, watching their father weep at dinner because he's lost his most beloved son, knowing that it's all a lie. That's how good they've gotten good, good at deception over the years. So this, this, this is getting passed on, this old family tradition of lies, deceit, and broken relationships. But there's one thing that's been passed on from four generations, and that is faith. Abraham had faith, their sons had faith, and the backdrop of all that messiness, God, they still believe that God is who he says he is, and it's being passed on. But that faith is being shrouded in brutal dysfunction. And the story of Genesis is how God's grace breaks in over and over again to rescue and redeem this family so that through them, God may bring this grace into the world that blesses the rest of the world. But the lesson in Genesis is this, if you're taking notes today. Our family's blessing and brokenness profoundly impacts who we are today. Our family's blessings and their brokenness profoundly impacts who we are today. This is all covered in detail in this ridiculously painful to watch TV show that I have to watch often because I love my wife, and, and that's called This Is Us. It covers like three generations of the family, and it fast forwards into a fourth generation. If you like crying, you can watch that show. 
But that's what happens. And it shows us that no matter how we try to escape our families, we have been impacted by our families. It shapes us who we are. This is not just some kind of new age psychological stuff that I'm trying to put in here. This isn't eisegesis. The Torah was read as one book back in the day. It was one book. It was Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But God has something to say about how our family's brokenness and the blessing impact us. And when he refers to this family tree in Exodus, the context that we're about to read in Exodus is that they have finally been freed from 400 years of slavery. They're in the wilderness. They've, they've just been set free. Moses goes up into Mount, Mount Sinai, and there's this beautiful thing that happens in the book of Exodus. For the first time in the history of the Bible, God refers to himself, as, to his people, as their father. He no longer just says, I am your God, I am your God. He says, I am your father. It's a new family relationship, a new family covenant. God is saying to Moses that throughout this relationship, you're going to discover how deep my heart is. You're going to discover my nature and my character. It's not just about rules, but about a relationship and how we reflect and represent the family of God and the world. So Moses is taken back by this, and he wants to see God. He wants to be in God's presence, and that's where we get into our passage today. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. We just saw four generations in the story of Abraham. But what God is saying here is some people read this and think that this is some kind of generational curse, that, the, that as grandkids we're cursed because of what our grandfathers did, that somehow today I keep getting flat tires and I always burn my toast because my grandfather went to a, a witch doctor when he was in World War II or something like that, and so I am cursed now today. And that's not what this passage is saying. This is the idea of generational sin. Not a generational curse, but generational sin. Innocent children are never punished in the Bible for their ancestors' sin. It says this in Ezekiel 18.20. It says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So we're not guilty for the sins of our grandparents. What Exodus means is that the iniquity of the father, the patterns, the habits, the hang-ups, the labels, the scripts, the trauma that they went through, the hurt gets passed down. And we all have them. Every family has them. And I don't care how great your family was. We're all influenced by some kind of junk. And that's saying to the third and fourth generation, that doesn't mean that once you reach to the fourth generation, it's finally gone. That, that phrase of the third and fourth generation, it was a Hebrew idiom that means for however long it takes for God to finally renew and restore that family tree. It'll continue to work itself out through your family tree until it's disrupted, until it's stopped, until it's put to death by someone. And that someone might be you. And you need to know that this is not a game. 
that you see through all four generations of Abraham's descendants that every generation struggles with the sin that came before them and faithfulness became harder and harder for them. It was difficult for them to stay faithful because their sin was compounding over time. The lies became easier and deeper. The deception became easier and deeper. Abraham cheated with Hagar. And now you have all the way down to Jacob who had 13 different kids with four different women. It's just, it gets crazy. What God is saying to Moses in Exodus is that you might have gotten this, I might have gotten you out of slavery, but I haven't got the slavery out of you yet. And what Jesus is saying to you right now is that you might have Jesus in your heart, but you have your grandfather in your bones. Your grandfather is in your bones. When Moses is having this conversation with God, where's the rest of Israel? They're at the bottom of the mountain making a golden calf. That's what they're doing. God is saying that children tend to repeat the same sins as their parents, and if they do, they'll receive the same judgment as their grandparents because hurt people hurt people. In our families, we learn what's been passed down from generation to generation. Sometimes we learn who to hate, how to hate. We learn what cultures to hate. We learn what races to hate. We learn who not to trust. We learn how to do conflict poorly. We learn particular bends for types of sins, types of addiction, types of lust, unfaithfulness. We, we come home, we go, I've had a hard day at work. When my dad had a hard day at work, he just drank himself drunk. And we do the same thing. We learn our attitudes about money, what we do with success and achievement from our families. God holds us accountable not to repeat those same mistakes and behaviors. It is up to you now. You are responsible with what you do with those patterns. You are not responsible for what happened to you, but you are responsible for how you heal from it. it because it's not just the sins that are passed down. It's the real world consequences that get passed down and passed down. So if you follow me here, if we all learn, uh, if we learn our, and receive our behaviors, habits, and patterns from relationships, then it only makes sense that we are then healed through relationships. We are healed, restored, renewed, and sanctified in relationships. And there is exceptionally good news. God's love and mercy triumphs over generational sin. Our passage that we just read in Exodus says, yes, the iniquity of the Father may show up for generations, but God's love is abounding and steadfast, and his faithfulness keeps steadfast for thousands. What we see in the rest of Joseph's story is that our past, our history, is not our destiny. Our past is not a prison. The sins of our family do not have to be our future. Joseph has been sold into slavery. His brothers think that he's dead. He learned so much being alone in that pit. But when he's sold into slavery, he's sold into Potiphar's house, who was a general in the army. He was an upstanding citizen in Egypt. He learns things from Potiphar. He's falsely accused and thrown into the king's prison where men and women who have dissed the king in some way are thrown and he's learning how to not speak to the king, how to not speak to Pharaoh. And, and in that prison, he starts 
deciphering and interpreting people's dreams. One of those men gets set free and he says, do not forget about me, and then he forgets them. And then Pharaoh has a dream and he's sitting in, this other man who's been set free from prison is sitting in Pharaoh's court, remembers that he forgot Joseph. Joseph comes before the king and because he's been prepared in all of these ways, he's able to communicate to the king in such a way that the king understands. He's thinking, who is this man? The king is so impressed that he makes Joseph in charge of everything. Joseph tells the king a famine is coming. And so what, 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 what Joseph does is he creates a hunger relief program to help these people in the midst of this famine. He's second in command of all of Egypt. People bow to him. Who comes asking for food? The one group of people that we've all hoped would come asking for food, and that's his brothers. And the way that we hope this all turns out is actually the way it turns out. His brothers don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them right away. And we're like, ooh, it is about to get good. Because we all love a revenge story. Listen, I've seen all three chapters of John Wick. I'm ready for this to go down. It's about to get messy. It's about to get cool. And that is not what happens at all. Joseph creates this scenario where his brothers have to face their past. He takes his younger brother, Benjamin, who was too young at the time to be involved in any of this. And he throws Benjamin in the, the dungeon and sets his brothers free. And says, go get your father and come back and we'll see about setting your brother free. And he wants to see whether or not his brothers are going to abandon Benjamin in the, the dungeon just like they abandoned him in that pit. So they got to confront their past. By the time his brothers get home, they find Jacob is actually dead. And they come before Joseph. And this is what happens. So what happens is Joseph is, is, is forcing his family to reckon with their past. And what happens out of that is repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Joseph uses his power not for revenge, but for redemption. And it says this in Genesis 50, 16. It says, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Which is a lie. Because they didn't... They, he died before they got there. And they say, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for I am, for I, for, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Where does that come from? What's happening there? And Genesis 20, or Genesis 50, 20 is so powerful. He says this again, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they, were, are, as they are today. Joseph says it's through that stuff that I would have never have chosen for myself, that stuff that is insanely painful, that I grew and I learned. It was through this process of suffering that Joseph is changed and he's able to save his family and it completely changes the, the trajectory of his family. And this took years. I'm not saying go home and set up a trap for the rest of your family. 
That's not what I'm saying. This took years for Joseph, for him to focus in, for him to be transformed, and for, he, for him to be redeemed. It did not happen immediately, but through a process. Joseph becomes someone who can weep over his family's brokenness. He grieves well. He speaks the truth well, and he forgives well. He not only forgave them, he, orchestra- he orchestrated their reconciliation. He anticipates what they're going to do. He knows they're going to lie. He knows they're going to be afraid of him. He knows they're going to lie about what their dad said. They knew he had respect for their dad, so they used their father's name again to tell a lie. Why? Because they didn't grow in the same way Joseph did. Joseph grew because of what he had been through. And Joseph knows this and profoundly says that God meant this. The phrase isn't that God turned this. The phrase is that God meant for this to happen, that I might walk through all this pain and be rebuilt and be restored and not be the same man that you are, that I might be someone different. And through all that pain and hardship, I've not only redeemed this family, but now our family tree once again can be the carrier of blessings for thousands of generations to come. He wants to bless everyone. Joseph made peace with his past. He allowed God to do his work. He was faithful even in the suffering. And he was able to integrate both the blessing and the brokenness into this beautiful tapestry of redemption. And here's the truth that God is showing us. We cannot make peace with others until we make peace with our past. And that's really hard for us to understand. We cannot make peace with others until we make peace with our past. We have to go back sometimes in order to go forward. That's what Joseph does, and that's what we must do. And then Joseph does one other thing that we have to do, and that's we need to reinterpret your story in light of God's story. Joseph is able to look back at his story and say, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. My question to you is, could you say that about your family of origin? What if I told you that with all of its pain and all of its brokenness, that God had you born in that family on purpose? That God puts you there on purpose. He knew what you would experience. With all that you have experienced, God carves out of that darkness, out of that sin, out of that brokenness, something beautiful. He overwhelms it with good. Sin needs to be repented of in your own life. It needs repair. It needs reconciliation. But you're also a wounded person that needs to be healed. You're not just somebody who struggles with sin. You're a wounded person. The good news is that God is a healer. He is a divine physician. You cannot change your past if you're not aware of how it's impacting your present. They say that your present is a window into your past. Stop and ask yourself, why is this happening? Why am I showing up in this way? Why do I handle conflict like this? And here's some good news. Becoming a Christian is to be birthed into a new family. Becoming a Christian means that you are being born again into a new family, the family and culture of Jesus. The dominant phrase that's used to describe us in the New Testament, besides body and bride, the most dominant phrase is the phrase family, that we are a family. God is now our father and we have been adopted as sons and daughters. We have a new future. We have a new inheritance. We are giving a new identity and a new name. That word Christian, that is a family name. That is your last name now. That is who you are. Every other identity structure now comes second. The most important blood I have in my body does not come from my bio family. The most important blood that I have is the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus says in Mark 3, 31 through 35, this powerful moment happens. It says, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking around, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is not dissing his mom in this moment. You're going, who's my mother and brother? Look around, look at this crowd. This is me now, mom. This, this is me. This is what I'm about. That's not what he's doing in this moment. He loved his mom in his last moments on the cross. He wanted to make sure that his mom was being taken care of because he loved her. He cared deeply about his mom. But what Jesus is doing is he's redefining the family of God, that your family is no longer your biological family. Your main family is the family of God. And this is a big deal. This is why you're not first Dominican or first German or first Irish or even first American. You're not an American Christian. You're a Christian American. You are a Christian and then you are your ethnicity. Because if you are first anything and then Jesus, that's idolatry. And people have done horrific things in the name of idolatry. You might start using your Christianity to start persecuting other people and that is an abomination. You are first a Christian because you are first loyal to Christ. Your main family is a family of Jesus. Being a disciple requires that you put off the pain and, and problems of your past and start relearning how to do life God's way in the family of God. It's to be reparented in the family of God. If your family and what's in your bones that's been passed down to you is dysfunctional ways of how to attach, how to cope, anger or addiction, the process of discipleship to Jesus is getting all those ways of beings out of your bone, bones and being made new in the family of Christ. And something that we all need to be aware of. Ask yourself, how did your family handle anger? Did you hide it and then explode and become the hawk and start destroying things in your house? Did you, did you, were you really passive about anger? You let people say what they were going to say. When they left the room, you were like, your mom, under your breath. Is that how you handled anger? How did you handle money? What did you think about money growing up? Was, was money evil and something that could not be touched? Or was money the one way that you could have expressed your importance? What was money like for you when you were growing up? Did you barely ever get it? So when you got it, you spent it because you didn't know you were going to have money again? How was sadness and grief handled in your family of origin? Was it perceived as weak and you weren't allowed to express it? Or was sadness and grief simply a tool used to manipulate somebody to get your own way? What does our father teach us about money? What does our father teach us about sadness and grief? You have to face these things. You have to do some work. And because, listen, I know some incredible Christians, some incredible pastors who refused to do this work and ended up doing the exact same things their father had done. I praise God because of a result of prayer this morning, I'm able to come to you more as a priest than a frustrated prophet. There have been things that have happened in my life, good people that I've seen, that I've loved, who have told me their family history, who said, my dad cheated on my mom and left all of us. I will never do that. And they ended up doing the exact same thing. And it breaks my heart. Because it's not enough just to cut your father off and put him in a closet and say, well, that's done with. Because the sin is still in your heart. It's been passed on to you. Unless you're, unless you're willing to face it and put it to death, it's going to repeat itself. I need you to understand that. 
I'm not coming to you out of frustration, I'm coming to you out of love. We have to be a church as a result of this. People are gonna come, they're gonna talk to you because it's in relationships they're healed, and they're gonna bring some gross stuff into the light. They're gonna say, I dealt with this, this happened. They're gonna bring it into the light so that it can die, and so that they can die. Can we be a church where people die with dignity? That when they come up here, when, when, they, when, they, when they say to somebody, man, I, I'm ready to die to this, can we be a people where, where, where without judgment people can do that? Instead of judgment, there's grace and celebration because somebody's being made new. When somebody brings that stuff up without gossip and slander, but encouragement and excitement, because we're excited about things being made new. We need to do hard things. Each week in this, I'm gonna give you a goal. Last week we had a goal, this week there's a goal. Our, my goal for you, for me, in 2023, is this year I will become a carrier of blessing to the next generation by reinterpreting my story in light of God's story. If you need to take a picture of that, you can. I'll put them on our social later, I'll email them to you. But that's something I wanna do. I wanna reinterpret my story. I wanna be a carrier of blessing to the next generation. And then write down your distractions. What's distracting you from doing that? What is your fears? My fear is that if I go down deep, it's gonna be painful. It will be painful. And Jesus is here for it. I'm here for it. We're here for it. Let's make this happen. And then each week I wanna give you a verse that can be yours. And so our verse this week is Genesis 12, 2, Psalm 90, 16 through 17, and Numbers 6, 24 through 27. And I'm gonna read those over you as we close in prayer together. If you could close your eyes and just bow your head and just give this moment to God without any distractions. I'm gonna read this over you right now. God says this in his word. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let your work be shown to your servants, God, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Father, I pray right now in these moments, God, that you would do what I can't do through a sermon, that your Holy Spirit right now will begin supernaturally doing the work, that you begin ministering to our hearts, that we would understand what is at stake, that I will break patterns in my family tree, that this is not a game for me, that I will do the hard work, I will fight the good fight. And God, we are so grateful that Jesus fought and won the greatest fight that humanity has ever known against sin and death. And now I am more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ because his inheritance is mine. I am made new through Jesus Christ. And tomorrow when I fail, I don't run from you in shame and fear because of my failure. I run to you because I am made new in Jesus Christ. I am your son. Your daughters are in this room. 
They can come to you, relate to you as their father. And now in this new family, they can be made whole. God, I pray that we would be made whole right now in this moment, that we would do the hard work, that we won't take ignorance as a response, that we do the research, that we would do the work, that we would dive deeply, that we would connect the dots so that the next generations may be redeemed. God, it is no wonder that families are under attack because we are the carriers of blessing. And God, so I pray over the families in this room that your favor would be upon them, that you would protect them, that you would bless them and that you would keep them. And I pray for that person in this room right now who for the very first time, their life is being changed, they are being renewed, that their generations to come after them will be faithful because of a decision they're making right now and the sincerity of their hearts, they are saying, God, I am a sinner in need of a savior and I believe that what you did on that cross was for me, that you died for my sins and that I am made whole because Jesus was killed, he was buried and he was resurrected. I am being resurrected. God, we're so grateful for new life in this room, so grateful for new life for generations to come. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. We give God some glory this morning. God is good. If you've given your life to Jesus, we wanna know about it, let somebody know. If you need prayer this morning, somebody would love the opportunity to pray over you. You can come at the end of the service, we can come as we close. But God is doing a work in this church, and we are all a part of it. There is no one too proud. There is no sin or pain too deep. That is who we are. Did you know that you can actually recover from a dysfunctional family? That's something you can recover from. We have all the things that you can recover from in the lobby today through Celebrate Recovery that will meet tomorrow night at 6 p.m. If that's something you want to do, I want to challenge you to be a part of that to see what that is, to do the work. But we have a lot of worship to do right now. We have a lot of praise to do right now because we have been redeemed and we have been restored through Jesus Christ, not just now, but for generations to come. Will you stand with me as we close in worship together?